Rank and Vile, the podcast where we attempt to rank every single horror movie ever. And on this episode, filling in for Quincy, who I believe is dying of the consumption like a Victorian orphan, uh, we have uh, author, uh, seamstress, and all-around enormous fucking nerd, uh, Alex Rowland. How's it going? Hi. I. It's going pretty good. <laughs> I mean, Which like, I, I was like, how do I... Because, like, I was like, wait, how do I intro my friend? <laughs> like, oh, God. How do you intro your friend? Well, I mean, we could have prepared a little bit more for this on, on like, my end, because, like, we spent a little bit of time talking about how I wasn't going to talk about Gremlins until we actually started recording. But we didn't actually right. talk about, like, what we were going to say about me. Which, right. you know, and I feel, I feel like... What are we going to say about me is something that, like, every human encounters in their day-to-day life. <laughs> right. Like, how do, how do I best represent myself? Well, um, I, I, first of all, I, 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 this is my... Uh, so the question we ask uh, every guest on Rank and Vile, uh, hot out of the gate, is what is your background in horror? Yes. So uh, just to introduce myself a little bit uh, so that I can be sure that we're doing it as competently as possible... Uh, so my name is Alexandra Rowland. I am a fantasy author, specifically. Uh, I have a book coming out next year, A Conspiracy of Truths, from Saga Press in the fall of 2018, which is less than a year away, and I am extremely excited about this. Uh, to answer your question, what is my background in horror? Um, I think I would answer that as, as little as possible. Um... <laughs> Horror, like, you know all about this, but just to catch up your listeners, Ryan, mm-hmm. uh, horror is not something that generally works for me, shall we say. Uh, mm-hmm. My background in horror, as you know, is that uh, the last horror movie, pure horror movie that I saw, was uh, The Skeleton Key in 2006, and I did not sleep for three days. Uh, I have a very, <laughs> I have a very active imagination, okay, and... Uh, yeah, that doesn't really work out when uh, <laughs> I'm confronted with uh, uncomfortable things. Uh, right. I'll also, uh, to continue my background in horror, uh, this last October when all of the uh, trailers were coming out for the Halloween movies, I saw a trailer for a scary movie that was coming out around which, Halloween. Which scary movie was it? I Do don't remember? remember what it was. I think it had something to do with death and uh, people sure. dying and a scary mm-hmm. thing happening. Yeah. Uh, maybe like a person in a house. Right. And That's, that, It's that classic horror trope of a guy in a house. Right. And like I think a phone was involved somehow. Uh, mm. The point was that I saw this trailer and it was one of those like 30 second uh, advertisements on YouTube. Uh, I saw this while I was at work, and for the rest of my shift at work, I had to keep my back to a wall because I was unsettled. Right. Which, so which I, I mean, especially, like, I, I, with the horror thing, I would love to see a thing about how many fantasy authors are also not enormous fans of horror. Yeah. Um, it, just the sort of thing of, like, you know, you've got, like a, you know, really overactive imagination, and you love, like, you know, creating whole worlds and going into mythology and stuff, and then you're like, if there's some dude who's up to no good and he's going to kill somebody... Fuck that. That's not, I'm not into that. Yeah, like, I do okay with horror elements in uh, fantasy novels, but, like, a book that's specifically out to do a thing, and that thing is scaring me to pieces. That's just not something Mm -hmm. that, like, works for me personally, although Mm -hmm. I do want to emphasize, like, I completely respect horror as a genre, and I think that horror is doing some, like, amazingly cool things, it's just not a thing that I want to happen. Like, it's not a thing I want to experience. Right, which is, like, also a thing that I have with, like, hard sci-fi, where I can look at it and be like, yeah, no, that's totally cool that you're, like, working out all the brass tacks of how space travel works. I would rather die than than read that. And I, which, especially with horror, it's, like, I feel like it's one of those genres that is so divisive. And I think for a good reason, because, like, when it's, it's, like, which is funny because you describing why you don't like horror, it's like it feels weird because like when I describe why I like horror, it's hard to explain mm-hmm. why that's the genre that really, really speaks to me. Because it's like, but, you know, being afraid is a bad feeling. So why would you seek out a feeling that is bad? Sure, sure. I mean, I'm definitely a proponent of feelings are how you know you're alive. Mm-hmm. And so like, even when I'm going through like, 
horrible, horrible heartbreak and everything is terrible. And I'm like lying curled up in my bed with tears streaming down my face. Sure. Like it still on some le level feels good because it is a, a feeling, it's an experience that is happening to you. And like, it's okay that it hurts because you know you're alive. And I right. think horror kind of uh, strikes a similar vein for most people. Well, yeah, and and of course, and I, I think um, I've I, I think we talked uh, like on on Rankin Vibe, we talked about it a few times. Where like you know, sort of like what's the hook with yeah. horror? Like what's the thing that makes you you know like it? And obviously, like for me, it's it's that thing of like it lets me like sit down with the things that I'm afraid of, and it's like I can you know because I'm terrified of everything all the time, mm -hmm. and I'm full of constant anxiety. And then watching a horror movie is sort of like. I get to sit down, engage with that fear, and then at the end of it, the movie goes off and I am okay. Right. And, you know, and yeah, and it lets you engage with that fear that's already such a big part of your life um, in a safe setting that then you can... And, and have I told you about how I got over my childhood terror of uh, Freddy Krueger from the Nightmare on Elm Street series? This sounds like a familiar story, but you know how I love your stories, Ryan. Tell me again. Oh, oh sure. Um, I, uh, so I, I saw Nightmare uh, on Elm Street Part 3, uh, Dream Warriors, at a fourth grade sleepover party, which I feel like is an elemental place to watch things that uh, traumatize you sure. as a fourth grade sleepover. And, you know, so I would have nightmares for, like, months about Freddy Krueger, and I was terrified of it. And then eventually I found online a bunch of pictures of Robert Anglin, the guy that plays Freddy Krueger, and, like, saw what an enormous ham that guy is and what a big fucking sweetheart. Uh -huh. And I just looked at picture upon picture of, like, back, like backstage sort of behind-the-scenes footage of Robert Anglin, like, gooning for the camera with, like, a boombox and in full Freddy makeup and, like him getting kissed on the head by all the kids in the first Nightmare movies. And it was just this way of sort of like, yeah, I, I, this Robert Englund is a nice man and he's not actually this guy and you're not actually going to die in your sleep. Mm -hmm. So. Cool. Yeah. yeah I think, a... I think I have heard that story from you before, but I do possible. love, I do love your stories, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> I like that you sort of, you, you sound like a fancy widow who's like, Oh, you know how I love your stories. <laughs> you, you know how I love your stories, darling. <laughs> All the time you're telling me about your childhood trauma. So, listeners, uh, listeners, really, we have to be honest with you here. Ryan didn't invite me on, on his lovely podcast uh, just for any reason. Like, he invited me on his podcast because he knew that I would flirt with him and also oh, compliment obviously. him and make him look good in front of the entire internet. Mm, mm -hmm. Well, mm -hmm. I mean, it was either going to be you or a guy I picked up at 7-Eleven and asked him if he'd ever seen The Shining. Um, but you have better hair, so I, I feel pretty good about it. I do have superior a... hair. That's true. You do. That's this true. Is, this is known. So let's jump into the first thing we're going to talk about, which is, which, by the way, in devising this list, um, I was trying to figure out, because, like, with Alex, I was like, okay, so you, uh, not a, not a fan of the horror movies, and there was no way that I was going to have you watch a thing that was legitimately like a scary movie so it was like all right because and here's the thing the list on the show we have now ranked a satanic panic propaganda video from the 80s from a christian group we have ranked wrestling matches we've ranked curious george a halloween boo fest mm. um and so some i was classics, you know trying some to, real classics there it re really and truly yeah, i mean yeah, really IWA... the sort of thing that everyone thinks of when they think of horror movies exactly right it's those classics that we we can all hang our hat on sure, we all know it's horror. sure sure um, and so for this, I was like, you know, like, what's a horror adjacent, um, property that I can, oh God, I actually just realized I hate using the word property as a descriptor of a piece of art. Um, oh God, working in content has ruined me. Uh, so the first one that jumped to mind was like, oh, let's do the episode blink mm -hmm. from Dr. Who from, uh, uh, series four of Dr. Who. Yep. Um, oh wait, was it series three? I don't remember one of those. Yeah, one of the, one of those real moffity seasons. Yeah. Um, and so Blink is the thing that, like, I feel like circa uh, late 2000s, everybody was obsessed with this episode. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Like, if you were on Tumblr around that time period, you had seen so many gift sets of, of, of that episode. Um, and I think it's funny. So let's get into, first of all, Stephen Moffat. He's, he sure is a dude. He sure is a dude. That, that <laughs> he... Stephen Moffat is... I don't know well, that I can say anything about Stephen Moffat that hasn't already been said on the internet. Right, exactly. Which sort of is 
the problem with having been active in nerd circles. Uh, and with Stephen Moffat, it's it's sort of that thing of he cannot run a full season of a show mm-hmm. uh, or this be is, the showrunner. This runner. is something that has been very well established, yes. What works, all right, so for you, what works in Blink? So this gets into, um, this. I think on this episode, we're going to talk a lot about both like the human brain and why the human brain invented such a thing as stories specifically. And also what sort of like evolutionary advantage stories and also specifically horror stories give us. Um, Mm -hmm. And that evolutionary advantage is that it kind of hones our instincts and um, stories are a flight simulation for the human brain. It lets us practice situations before we get into it. And so the scariest thing to the human brain is not being able to identify a pattern because that's what the human brain is for. It is for, it is specifically designed to recognize and implement patterns. And so if you don't know what pattern it is, it means that you're not in control and it means Mm -hmm. that you can't solve the problem, essentially. Uh, So Blink is terrifying because you don't get to see the monster. Um, The monster is only there when you're not looking at it. And that means that your brain can't deal with it. The other thing that makes Blink work, which, you know, probably a million people have pointed this out on the internet before, uh, but the thing that makes it work more than anything else is that the audience counts as a pair of eyes. And this is why it got screwed up the next time the Weeping Angels appeared when we actually saw the move because all of a sudden we didn't count as a pair of eyes anymore. And that ruined the magic, you know? Like, when we were also watching them, it meant that we were also vulnerable to them. Right. Well, and also, like, Doctor Who went back to that well probably a few too many times with the Weeping Angels. Yeah. Because, I mean, because, like, that first episode was a fucking, you know, revelation for the internet. And then you had the second, like, you had the second one, which was a two-parter about them. And then they took it to New York City where the goddamn Statue of Liberty. Yes. And I feel like that's such a classic Moffat move, too, is that he, like, he sees a trick, like, one small trick that worked really, really well for him. And he's like, what happens if we dial it up to 11? What happens if we dial it up to 15? And it's like, dude, sometimes things work really well when they're small that do mm. not work well when they're huge scale. Well, and just actually, like, and this kind alone. of just it... leave it alone, Stephen Moffat. <laughs> Which actually, this this kind of reminds me of um, one of the movies we've uh, ranked uh, on our big stupid list of horror movies is um, the movie Alien from 1978. And mm. the problem is that like so. There's the old, like, Alien versus Aliens, the sequel by James Cameron uh, argument, which I think is a dumb argument because they're totally different movies. But I think the thing that makes me like Alien more than Aliens is that in Alien, you don't see the the, the xenomorph in full until the very end of the movie. Before mm. that, it's a glistening, gross, spiny thing that hangs out and drips in the shadows. And you see flashes of it, but you're not exactly seeing, like, the high-def version of the xenomorph, where in Aliens... You've got, like, the the thing that doesn't necessarily work for me as much as the first one is that James Cameron went, if you thought one alien on a spaceship was scary, try a whole planet of them. Right. And they're getting mowed down with machine guns and flamethrowers, and it kind of makes them less threatening to me. Oh, if yes. If you've got, like, scores of them. Um, and so with, with Doctor Who, like, with the, the Blinking Angels, I feel like it's also a big, pr- it's a very Moffatian Moffat-esque? Moffatian, yes. Moffatian, yes. Um, It's it's a a really idiosyncratic thing that he loves doing these monsters where it's, what if monster, but weird thing about monster, where, you know, he he, he did this a lot in his run on Doctor Who, where it was like, um, oh, this thing hides under your bed and you can't look at it, or it it was, you know, in, like, The Empty Child, where it's like, oh, they can't touch you, or, like, he'll, he'll try to do these really cerebral monsters, and... It was like he kept trying to redo the Weeping Angels as his run on the show progressed. Uh-huh. And it was bad. Um, but the Weeping Angels, I, I think you're totally right. Like, as a viewer, your eyes, you start becoming really conscious of your own blinking. Yes. 
Yes. Which is so cool if you can get uh, sort of audience participation at home without really thinking yeah, about it. Yeah, it's it's so visceral. And like I have not, as will probably not surprise you, Ryan, uh, I have not seen either Alien or Aliens. Um, I have no experience whatsoever of pop culture. Um, <laughs> <laughs> See, I, but, but like for how much of a part of pop culture they are, I feel like you've basically seen them okay sure sure i mean i kind of know like vaguely what you're talking about and mm. i completely understand where you're coming from about like a whole planet full of these aliens is not as scary as one single alien and the reason why that is is that it means that they're a part of an ecology mm -hmm. and it that makes them like a natural thing from the real world and right. a natural thing isn't really that scary it just means that they're like an animal and they're part of the food chain and yeah so that's exactly. not yeah, that's like... not scary and also like the other thing you said when you can't see the alien like things that you can't see because your brain is designed to again do pattern recognition it wants to fill in the blanks so if you right. show a human brain like a blank space and stick a tail on one side of it it's just going to fill it in with whatever and that whatever is going to be the thing that's specifically most scary to you personally right and especially with looking for patterns i mean like the fear part of your brain that's the thing that keeps you from wandering into traffic right because of you know patterns you've learned your entire life that if you know a is true then b is true like if i wander into the road i might get hit by a car and so yeah horror necessarily has to upset that balance where it gives you a pattern you don't know yet yes or it um, keeps the pattern from you so that you're sitting there going like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Because that's right. the core fear of horror is what do I do? What do I do? And as soon as you see the monster, you start having an idea, an idea of, oh, here's what I would do. Right. And that's why the original Blink works. And like the the other re reprises of the Blink uh, of the Weeping Angels don't really work because the first one had uh, consistency and it had rules that it yes. had to follow. Yes, yes. And it had to adhere to that. And then, you know, you get over into the other episodes with the Weeping Angels. And it's like, not only do you have to not blink at the specific statues of the Weeping Angels, if you're looking at a picture of a Weeping Angel, that's a Weeping Angel. And yes. it's like, ah, th this is horseshit. This is nonsensical. And like, not that it, I mean, but the thing is like, if you, what it is, if you're not going to make, if, if it's a thing like sci-fi or fantasy or horrors or speculative fiction generally, if it's, of course it doesn't make sense because it doesn't exist, but if it doesn't make sense, it has to consistently not make sense in exactly the same way. Right. Otherwise, people start asking, well, what's the evolutionary advantage of this? Like, why, if this is a real creature, like, why is it the way that it is? It, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and that's so another, like, as soon as your audience starts sciencing at it, then, like, that mm. ruins some of the, the magic and the fear. Right. And, and I mean, which I want to encourage you to see uh, Alien, but also I, I respect you and want good things for you. And I know that this movie would keep you awake for probably a week. Mm, um, mm -hmm. But one of the things that it does that I really, really love is that, that you can tell that they worked out so much of how that movie made sense. Because it was like, okay, so if there's an alien on a ship and they got to kill this alien, then you start asking questions like, well, why don't they just shoot the fucking thing? And they came down to like, okay, uh, its blood is corrosive acid. And if you shoot at it and it bleeds all over the place, it's going to eat through the hole and you're all going to die. And then it's like, okay. Um, so the face hugger that attaches to your face and lays an egg, uh, an egg in your stomach, why wouldn't they just peel it off? And, and then it's like, well, you can't because it attaches itself to your face. And if you rip it off, you take the face off with it. And so I like things that you can tell that they've devoted any amount of thought to. And I feel like with Blink especially... Um, not only does it work as a really cool piece of horror, there's a goddamn love story in there. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's, and it's one of those things that when I, when I watch it, it's like a self, it's, it's a perfectly self-contained thing that you can show people because it doesn't rely too much on previous storylines in the series. It doesn't ask much more of you than just, there's a guy called the doctor. He flies around in a phone box and there's some angels and yeah. it's fucked up. You know, gonna, I don't, I don't him. think you really even need to tell them that. Like... Because he only appears a little bit. Like, they get from the episode that there's some time travel stuff involved. Because yeah. you are being explained to, at the same time that, uh, what's her name? It's not Susan, right? Sally Sparrow? Sally Sparrow, that's the one. You're, yeah. You are getting the explanation at the same time that Sally is getting the explanation. And you, right. you and Sally both only get the bare minimum that you need to understand the situation that you're in right now. Right. Um, and then... 
especially with Sally Sparrow, like I think it's that her arc, like there's a complete character arc for the, for for Sally Sparrow that yeah. actually feels satisfying. And I feel like with um, a lot of horror, um, my favorite kind of horror is, uh, for example, like you take like The Exorcist or something, and it's like this is a movie about a single mother and a daughter she doesn't necessarily understand, and she's trying to keep it all together and maintain her own career and uh, her own career into the bargain. Dot dot dot. And also Satan is there. Um, uh-huh. And Blink works on the level that it's like, yeah, there's shit going on aside from just the monster in the thing. Right. Like, it, it has, you know, it has hobbies. It has shit it wants to do. Also, there's Weeping Angels. Um, and I don't know that Stephen Moffat or Doctor Who ever really followed it up with something equally... I, I wonder if they reached their zenith with Blink and after that it was... I mean, maybe Silence in the Library was pretty good. Yeah, like, I had I had a very visceral reaction to Blink. Uh, a very, by the way, I should clarify, like, it was an enjoyable visceral reaction. It was one of the <laughs> only times that I watched something scary and actually, like, was scared and also shut it off and went, this is great, I really like that. Um, and maybe it's, like, the sort of science fiction-y elements that are in it that are comfort- comfortable and comforting and familiar to me. Uh, but mm. also with Silence in the Library, that's another one that I had a very visceral reaction to. I cannot watch Silence in the Library without pulling my feet up just in case. And right. it's, it's because... that, like, just in case that... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, like, also with Stephen Moffat, sort of the gimmick monster thing of, like, it's shadows. Shadows are, are going to try to, you know, hurt you. Um, which I think is also a very, like, uh, is a cool horror idea to take a thing that's commonplace yes. in people's lives and go, what if your toaster was some Draculas and it's going to try to kill you? Like, <laughs> where it's like, sh- yeah. you know, it, it's it's sort of like why uh, my partner Christina, like, she, one of the reasons she doesn't uh, like home invasion horror movies is because she goes, shit, I have a house. That could happen to me. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and it's like that where it's like, oh, God, I'm around shadows. all. The- I'm around statues all the time. What if they're going to fucking try to eat me, eat, like, eat my life force and send me back in time? Yeah, yeah. And, like, then you start noticing, like, oh, there are really statues everywhere oh yeah. no god what have we done what have we done <laughs> which again is another thing I, I have you have you read a lot of stephen king or no i have read exactly one stephen king book and that was on writing no, which is still fucking great i mean I, yeah it was it was a very great stephen king book that i enjoyed quite a lot mm-hmm. uh but oh wait no 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 i read the first book of the um the dark tower series as well <laughs> i did I not the, enjoy I that i love what? I love that that's your starting point for Stephen King is like the super deep cut Stephen King nerd like compendium book of his previous books. Yeah. Well, I think it was called The Gunslinger, right? That's the title yeah. of the first one, right? Yeah, I did not. I did not like that book. I did not. It was very, yeah. it was like extremely like hyper masculine and I'm super not into it. Yeah, that, that, that's also, Christina as well doesn't like the movie Tombstone for largely and the same reason. I felt like I wasn't supposed to care about anyone, which I found very alienating and mm-hmm. not fun. Yeah, which, especially with Stephen King, I, The Dark Tower is self-indulgent as fuck, I think. Uh-huh. Um, but the thing that he does with his horror fiction that, I, that I've always really, really liked is that um, he was a really great author to take the idea of horror and kind of, um, previously it was like a lot of weird fiction stuff and a lot of like dilapidated mansion with like an ancient, like old world monster in it or something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he made it so that your, your local sandwich artist might actually be possessed by Satan or there's an alien at your local laundromat or like he helped to bring horror into the kind of Main Street America um, milieu that could actually worry you a lot more than just like, well, I don't live near any dilapidated mansions in the south of France, so I should be okay. Right, right. Um, it made it. It made it more because like dilapidated mansions in the south of France are very like gothic, mm-hmm. um, and and yeah, I think I agree. Like Stephen King really brought it to the modern day, and yeah. made it made it real and something that you could touch and like. Ex- experience in your actual life and like just exactly. just like blink it sort of like crosses out of the medium like between the screen and life or between the page and life and is then affecting you in the real world and i think that is so like that is so amazing and so magical and i yeah. still and- want no part of it <laughs> 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 Which is, you know, honestly, I, I feel like that when I look at, like, 
um, bizarre food where I'm like, oh man, that's so cool. I will never eat that. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Like that's an amazing, beautiful part of that wonderful culture. No, thank you. I'll yeah, pass. no, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> I'm so, so glad that you have it though. Like, I'm so glad that like you have it. It makes the world like more interesting and exciting and um, colorful. But I'm good. Right. I'm good here. Thank well, you. Thank you. <laughs> Which also with the Weeping Angels, I think one more aspect that makes them particularly scary to me is kind of, I don't know why I keep fucking wanting to compare it to Alien, but here we go. Um, it's kind of unkillable in the context of the episode. Mm -hmm. Like you can't, you know, like if, so with, with horror, like if you can subdue the monster or knock it down or kill it. I feel like that becomes a, a, a that's slightly less horror than the idea of either outlasting or outsmarting the monster. Yes, um, and um, I have an interesting thing to say about that as well. Um, one of the reasons why this thing can outlast you is so terrifying is because of the sort of predators that humans are. We are mm -hmm. we have like the best stamina in the animal kingdom. Like we are designed to be pursuit hunters, where we will just like walk after our prey. Right. For days and days and days and days until it falls over exhausted. And then we <laughs> right. walk up. We walk up. We don't jog up. We walk up and stab it. Um, and so the idea that anything could either match us or outdo us in that regard is fucking unsettling on an extremely deep evolutionary level. Yeah, that's a goddamn. That's a great point. Like, yeah. which also I love that that's our our main evolutionary perk is that we're really persistent and really annoying. We'll just like loiter after you for days until the mammoth falls over. Yeah. Well, and and specifically with the weeping angels, you can't even the I, you can tell that Stephen Moffat is very proud of himself for having devised them. Where it's like mm -hmm. it's a perfect it's a perfect uh, predator because it turns into fucking stone as soon as you look at it. And you can't destroy that. Um, and Unless I, I, you I, had, I feel like, like, dynamite, maybe. Yeah, I mean, like, maybe if you had dynamite or... Um, but on the other hand, like, there would be a split second where, like, we're talking nanoseconds between the explosion happening. There would be a moment where you would not see the angels right before they were destroyed. And that might be enough time for them to escape. Right. And yeah, like in the in the giant uh, initial plume of smoke, they might like moonwalk on out of there and, and and get away from it. But I mean, like maybe you could lure them into an act. Like if you if you look at them and then you pick them up and make sure that there's like people watching it all the time, you could maybe drop it into an active volcano or something. Mm, yeah, yeah. But but let's face it, I'm not that motivated. I no, would probably just let it kill me. That takes a lot of planning. Yeah, and then also there's the cool thing of like it's it doesn't eat you in the conventional sense like i do think it's a cool monster mechanic that it zaps you into the past feeds on your potential life force and lets you live to death in yep. the past um which by the way that episode with amy and rory and the angels take manhattan um dumb side note i hate that episode for a couple of reasons but also i hate it because when amy and rory um both decide like buh we're gonna jump off this building and, and die together um, you've got this like swelling string section in the background and it's done in super dramatic slow motion. And I, listen, I cry at like infomercials. Mm -hmm. I did not cry at that death because I don't like, uh, I don't like soundtracks bossing me around and telling me how to feel. Sure. Sure. <laughs> like if it, it's like, look, trust that this is, this has enough gravity and is sad enough to make me cry without needing to, I don't know, put that much salt and pepper on it. Yeah. I, I can, I completely agree. Yeah. But. So, uh, on, uh, on the list, um, which, th and, and then there was this thing that I was wondering was like, how do I rank these movies with you? Because I don't think you've probably seen any of the movies on our disgusting compendium of horror movies. No, I have not. Um, <laughs> so I, I will, um, before, before oh, I do that, I have, I have a weird question. Would you consider mm -hmm. Pan's Labyrinth to be a horror movie? I absolutely would consider it to be a horror movie. Yeah. Okay. Cause I have also seen that. Oh shit. Yeah, well, and, and it was very a, good, and I could talk tuned. about it. Have me back on another episode so I can talk about Pan's <laughs> Labyrinth with you. <laughs> See, we could talk about Pan's Labyrinth, and then, like, I don't know, maybe uh, Guillermo del Toro, maybe we could do, uh, I don't know, I, I would have a hard time justifying Hellboy, but Which also one? I, Hellboy. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah, the, see, I, I had a feeling, and I, 
that's one of those movies where I'm like, yeah, it's got horror elements, but uh, I feel like it's a little more punch guy yeah. than Yeah, like if you give me like fantasy and sci-fi elements with it, I can handle it. It's like it's it's like when you need to give a dog a pill and you wrap it <laughs> you in a piece it of cheese. ham. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's yeah, like we got to listen, a spoonful of sugar. Um, so in ranking uh, Blink, I was uh, so in looking at the list, I think the closest one that I want to say that I know that um, my, my ceiling for this uh, would be that I definitely think that this episode of Doctor Who is not as good as the movie Candyman. Um, okay. Which probably means nothing to you. It does not mean anything to me whatsoever. Um, guy with a hook for a hand pops out of your mirror if you say his name five times and kills him. I don't think I've even heard of this, darling. But, so I'm, I feel like I want to put it uh, below Candyman and then probably uh, right above this movie called Pumpkinhead, which actually does not feature a monster with a pumpkin for a head. It's a, it's a long story. Uh, okay. But sure. Lance I mean, sure. Stuff. Why not? Sure. <laughs> so definitely, I would be, say the first. Listen, listen. You could be making shit up for all I know right now. <laughs> like, yeah, it's it's Alex. It's this movie about a guy with like a hook for a hand and like a fish for a mom and right. like some kind of gourd for mm-hmm. a face. And I'm like, wow, yeah, terrifying, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, like, listen, if I know anything about horror, it is based on a few things, one of which being gourds. Um, very, very fond of gourds, the horror. Also hooks. Gourds are terrifying. Um, oh, wait, so wait, have you seen the first Gremlins? The which one? Uh, the first Gremlins. Nope. Oh, there we go. So I was going to say, I'm going to put it, uh, uh, I think, uh, under Gremlins, above Pumpkinhead. Okay. At our new number 58 movie is Blink from Doctor Who. Cool. Which I think is pretty respectable, especially right. 58 out of 157. Alex, Jesus Christ, we have ranked 157 movies on this podcast. You have an amazing podcast, and I think that everybody <laughs> in the entire world should listen to it because you well, are so great and special, and also I appreciate you and your friendship so much. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I, do, I do appreciate that. You can send the $20 to my PayPal. Okay, anytime. good. All right, awesome. I was, I was going to ask, but I didn't yeah. know how to... How to Brook the, the payment for you saying nice things about me. Um, so the next movie, but which, by the way, I'm so fucking excited to talk about. Yeah, yeah, me too. Is 19, 1990s Gremlins 2. The the myth, the legend, Gremlins 2. Yeah, Gremlins fucking 2. Right? Because um, we were going to do the original Gremlins, and then I realized, wait a minute, we've gotten to the part in doing this podcast where I'm like, oh, fuck, we already, we've already done Gremlins on this podcast. But then I was like, but we haven't done Gremlins 2. Um the, myth, so off the legend. <laughs> fuck. So off top, how do you feel about Gremlins 2? So, okay. So here's the thing about Gremlins 2. Now, I think that you're expecting me to say this is a terrible movie. And don't get me wrong. It is. Except we have to then stop and like have a really honest conversation about the definition of words like terrible. Like, what does a bad movie mean? <laughs> Now, you could say that a bad movie is low in quality, uh, that Mm -hmm. perhaps it has an extremely deeply flawed plot. Uh, Certainly a bad movie would be something that's like super fucking racist. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think we can agree on that. Um, There are many, many things that make a movie bad. Uh, And many different um, ways that we can look at it. For example... A movie that a lot of people use the word bad in reference to is one of my favorite movies of all time, Jupiter Ascending. Yes, um, I knew it was going to be Jupiter Ascending. You knew it was going to be Jupiter Ascending. Um, there's never a moment in the day when I'm not thinking about Jupiter Ascending <laughs> and not wanting right. to use Jupiter Ascending as an example for things. Uh, because mm-hmm. Jupiter Ascending is, yes, a bad movie. Yes. It's also, it's a, it's a bad movie. It's also the most perfect movie Perfect, maybe not in, in quality, but it's mm-hmm. perfect for me. Well, it's um, an unfettered fucking delight is the thing. It is a, it, it was specifically engineered to be a fucking delight <laughs> for the inner 14-year-old girl that lives inside me and indeed inside all of us. Well, uh, and, inside, <laughs> and inside the 14-year-old girl, uh, uh, both of them that wrote fanfic about yes. Sean Bean being a bee and Channing Tatum is your werewolf boyfriend in space. Yes. Um, and they wrote this fanfic and also had millions of dollars to film yes. it. Yes, and, and she's a secret space princess. 
and sure. like everybody else knows that she's a princess except her. And then we find out, and then royalty. she finds out that she's a princess. And like she's got this super hot bodyguard. Yeah, it's perfect. It is the bees movie. can smell royalty. Bees can sense royalty, Ryan. Um, <laughs> and like her cool hot bodyguard guy has wings and also jet boots mm-hmm. and right. Yeah, like this movie is specifically designed for every single 14-year-old girl who ever wrote a Mary Sue fan fiction. This is for them. This is a big hug for those 14-year-old girls. Yes. Um, We're getting off track, though. Like, I could... could (laughs) Dear, dear, you're you're getting worked up about Jupiter Ascending again. I could continue talking about Jupiter Ascending for, yay, several years, uh, Mm. and I probably will, but for the sake of this podcast, let's bring it back to Gremlins 2. Gremlins 2. So one of the ways that we can classify a bad movie is a mm-hmm. movie that sets out to do a thing and fails to do that thing. Well, and, and Roger Ebert, Roger Ebert would agree with you on that. Like, like his, sure. his, his, his metric for a bad movie is like uh, two things. What is it trying to do? How well does it do that? Right, right. Uh, and one of the reasons why I don't consider Jupiter Ascending, to bring it back to Jupiter Ascending, of course, one of the reasons that <laughs> sure. I don't consider that to be a bad movie is because it knows exactly what it wants to do, and then it mm-hmm. does that thing deliberately and carefully with precision, with laser-guided <laughs> precision. It does exactly the thing that it sets out to do. It's perfect. It's beautiful. Gremlins 2 also wants to do a thing, and mm-hmm. it does that thing. And you Oh, can, boy, does it do that. Oh, boy, does it do that thing. And so in that regard, we can't really classify it as a bad movie per se because it's not failing at what it wants to do. The thing that it wants to do is to, and it does this explicitly twice during the movie uh, that I counted. Um, The thing that it wants to do is to give a big middle finger to everybody who hated Gremlins 1. (laughs) Especially Leonard Maltin. Yes. So, so there's the scene where there, there's what's his name talking to the people in the security office. I did not bother to learn anyone's names in this movie. Oh, it's not important. Um, <laughs> Some guy. No. Uh, and they are asking extremely reasonable questions about gremlins, about gremlin right. physiology, uh, what happens if they like, get something stuck in their teeth, if they like, eat before midnight, and then they get like a bit of food stuck in their teeth and then later it comes out and they swallow it. Like, does that count? Uh, what if you're in a plane and you cross a time zone? Like, does that count? Right. All of these completely reasonable, wonderful questions, which I also want to know the answers to. Yeah, um, me too. And in the middle of these completely reasonable questions, a gremlin comes out of the console and mauls the guy. Um, <laughs> and that, yeah. is, that is literally and explicitly what the creators of Gremlin would like to happen to everybody questioning Gremlins. And it's uh, great because it's, it's, it's like, you know, like, yeah, l- listen, these are all really great questions about Gremlin physiology and world building. Shut uh, up. If I can uh, offer up. a Just rebuttal. Shut up. Like, <laughs> have you that's con- fine. <laughs> shut up. <laughs> Have you considered that fucking gremlins? Have you considered and it just leaps out of the console. Uh, and yeah. then the other scene is, of course, um, the bit where there's the guy <laughs> reviewing Gremlins 1. Like, and he's like, he's talking shit about it. He's talking shit about the movie Gremlins. And so right. gremlins come out and garrot him. And yeah, which by, the, which, by the way, side note here, uh, apparently uh, Leonard Malton, in his review of Gremlins 2, in which he had this cameo, he think I, I think he gave it um, three out of four stars, uh-huh. while also saying that it had a gratuitous cameo. So he like subtweeted himself in in the review of it. Oh, that's funny. So God bless. That's funny. Um, so so yeah, like when when you look at Gremlins as maybe a piece of art, although why would you? Um, mm-hmm. Right. Like sure, no, it's it's not a good movie. But when you look at Gremlins two as a giant middle finger to everybody who hated Gremlins one, it's doing exactly what it set out to do, and like. On that level, like, I can't really fault it for that. Right. Because and at the end of the day, you've got, like, so, it, you know, I, I, I assume everybody has seen the, the Key and Peele sketch about uh, Gremlins 2 and about how, like, like what that meeting must have looked like to try to plot out Gremlins 2. And it's great because, like, again, Gremlins 1 is a pretty straightforward, like, family, kind of family horror movie in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, it had, like, kind of dark elements, but at the end of the day, you know, bring the family, we got Tiny Muppets, Steven Spielberg is producing this. And then Gremlins 2 is doing this, like, 
Paul Verhoeven level like social commentary because it takes place in this office building that's fully automated. Yeah. And it's this movie is uh, trying trying to uh, in any way dissect this movie by any reasonable metric by which you would do anything else. It's kind of a, a fool's errand. Sure. Like we got we got Lady Gremlin seducing the EMH doctor <sighs> from Star Trek Voyager. Jesus Christ. Right, we got spider gremlins, we got vegetable gremlins. Um, and, like, the, the thing about this movie also is that uh, what I wondered was, who is this movie for? Because, so you've got, like, sort of explicit weird sex stuff, and you've got, like, sort of ultra-violence. Like, there's a scene in this where um, the Donald Trump figure that runs um, the, the company that this uh, office building is in he straight up crams a gremlin down a paper shredder, like yes. Fargo style. Like, I have, okay, so I took notes as I was watching this movie, and at that point, like, I did pause the movie to, like, bang out in all caps. Hold on, let me see, let me see where it is. I have to scroll mm. down. Mm. Uh, shredding the gremlin is way more gore than I was expecting from a film like this. <laughs> right, it's, the gore and the sex is like, again, it's, it's that contrasted with, okay, we definitely need the, the smart gremlin, to sing a cover of New York, New York by Frank Sinatra. Yeah. Which, as we know, beloved by children of the early 90s, Frank Sinatra. Absolutely. All of whom know what New York, New York is. Yeah. Um, and like the, even like the ending of this movie is fucking ultra-violent. Like, yeah. there's a giant lobby full of gremlins, all of them wilding the fuck out, yelling, doing gremlin stuff. They douse all of them in water, which just makes more gremlins, like, spawning from this weird amniotic sac that appears mm -hmm. on a gremlin when you spill water on them. And then in the midst of this weird, like, you know, orgy of, of, of life and birth and screaming and gremlins, they electrocute all of them to death, and it melts them down into a fine paste, and we yes. watch this happen. Yeah. Um, it's, and it's a little much. It's a little much, I'm going to say. Sure. Like, even, like, the smart gremlin, who we know is now imbued with sentience, we watch him get, like, melted down into a skeleton. Yeah. And, and throughout these proceedings, by the way, Gizmo, the cute, friendly gremlin, is watching all of this happen and going, yes! <laughs> like, he is so into his brethren getting fucking melted. Yeah. So, okay. So, I know I've used the words evolutionary advantage several times already during this podcast, but really, like, what is the point like what is it why do they get so much joy in seeing other gremlins in get get, get killed murdered. In, and murdered i mean like is it just that they are like pure forces of chaos if so like why can they stand to be in these huge packs either that's actually a great question yeah like either they are like solitary chaos hunters mm -hmm. um like i don't fucking no uh i'm trying to think of like something in the animal kingdom that might vaguely match up to it and i can't really because it's a fucking gremlin um or, or I, I hate to bring up an old i hate to bring up an old internet joke but honey badger maybe maybe something that like is mostly or a tiger how about that tigers oh, don't packs they're mostly solitary um yeah. and or so you, you have the option of, of like that solitary kind of hunter that is out mm -hmm. to kill things. Or yes. you have the option of like something that hangs around in big, big packs. And considering how easily they reproduce whenever they get wet, um, for one thing, how is the world not overrun with gremlins? And also, second question, uh, or like second point, is that they must be tolerant of each other in huge groups. That makes sense. And, and, and is it a kind of also, like... Also, one more thing is that we also see them working cooperatively with each other at several points during the movie. So they must be group hunters. That's actually... So at what point does it become like they're chaotic neutral, even to their own detriment, even if they're throwing their own pack to the wolves because they're, at the end of the day, like... I, like they're they're like a pure small representation of the id, right? Like yeah. where they're just like down for violence, down for apparently foot fetishes and flashing in it in this children's yeah, movie. Yeah, that was a little weird. <laughs> I gotta tell you, there's another scene in this where a character gives another character a foot job under a table. Yep. In your kids' movie, because that's what you want. Um, but which, by the way, side note there, 
I, there are so many movies from the like late 80s and early 90s that feature a scene where there are two characters out of dinner, the lady slips off her stiletto, and starts rubbing some dude's wiener with her foot, and apparently that's supposed to be attractive? Yeah, like, I, I haven't really gotten it. Like, no one's ever given yeah. me a foot job under the table, and I've gone to many dinners. So are you really a fancy adult if you if that's never personally happened I, to you in your I'm adult gonna life? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say, yeah. no, you're not really an adult until someone tries to give you a um, foot job under a table at a fancy Canadian restaurant. Exactly. Which then makes me wonder, like, okay, who's... So they must have sent the dailies to the studio, and some dude was like, hmm, this is definitely a kid's movie. Which, by the way, apparently um, the first Gremlins, I did not know this, uh, was one of the movies that helped develop the PG-13 rating. Hmm. Um, because they kind of didn't know what to do with Gremlins, because it was like, all right, sure, it's a kid's movie, but that kitchen scene is pretty fucked up and then yeah. with gremlins 2 first gremlins pg this movie pg-13 i can see um it. yeah and that which by the way side note there there's another bit in there uh where there's a slayer song uh playing in the background it's a song called angel of death and it's a song about joseph mengel um the the nazi war criminal uh -huh. which is so in your kids movie you definitely want um a slurry of murdered puppets and Slayer songs about the Holocaust and also foot jobs. Yeah, and a quote from Rambo. <laughs> In order to win a war, you gotta become war. Like, Which mean, means nothing, by the way. What the fuck? What? Oh, my God. Um, oh, also, like, I don't know if we were finished with that, that point, but I just want to go back to something that you were saying about um, Blink and that scene with Amy and Rory where there's those, those like swelling strings in the background and you feel like your feelings are being yanked around and you don't appreciate mm -hmm. it. Yeah. That's kind of how I felt every time I was looking at the cute gremlin. Like, yeah. like here's this thing which has been like focus tested, like focus group tested to be as adorable as possible. And right. I'm expect and it succeeds. I mean, like it does things to the animal parts of the human brain that appreciate like small, fluffy, large eyes to head ratio. Um, like it makes like these little noises, like a baby, it purrs, like it's all right. the things that you, you want in a thing that you want to pick up and snuggle. Like mm -hmm. this says, here monkey, pick this up and snuggle this, right? <laughs> and right. like, except it does it so obviously that I'm like, fuck you. I don't yeah. want anything to do with that thing. Yeah, like, like this thing was put together by a committee of cuteness experts who yeah. all, yeah, refined it into a, an, into a sharp instrument of cuteness that everybody wants to nurture. Which, by the way, apparently cats also develop the ability in real life to um, make their meows sound more like human babies so that we want to uh, nurture them. Yes, except cats also have, like, claws and little murder mouths. I'm actually, like, snuggling my kitten as I say this and, like, looking mm -hmm. into her tiny little murder face. Like exactly. I know that I know that you're a predator. You know that you're a predator. You try to attack my feet on a daily basis. Um, like you've got yeah. this nice balance between I could murder you and also I'm the cutest thing in the world. Feed me. Which I think is a nice balance to have with cats. That like listen, man, like I, I love that about cats. That like listen, if um, the cats are like kind of looking at you, like you know what, like you're great and everything. You pet me and I love you in as much as I love anyone or anything. But if I were like Clifford sized, I would kill you without even pausing to think about it yeah and, I, and like they wouldn't do it out of like malice or, or or being a dick it just wouldn't occur to them not to bat you around and bite you right right and also like i've i've accepted the fact that if i ever die in my bed like my cat's gonna eat my face like i've that's, that's a just a thing go. that's just a thing that's gonna happen and like that's sort of the beautiful cycle of nature um yeah and, like, you weren't using your face at that point anyway. Yeah. And, like, I feel like that's a that's a fair trade for this wonderful ball of fluff letting me rub my face in her tummy um, every day exactly. for the last five years. <laughs> but, but, but if you, if, but if you blew up Gizmo the Gremlin to Clifford-sized, that's, no one wants that. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, yes, the, the cute Gremlin is far too cute. Um, I mm -hmm. objected to its cuteness. Every single time. I wish that it would dial it back just a little bit. Just a, just a little, little bit. Just a little, right. little bit there. Um, like the little, um, the workout montage. Like the get strong oh, sure. montage. Like, like mm -hmm. that's so offensively cute. Like it's too sweet. 
Yeah. Yeah. At, at that point, it becomes sort of like, listen, maybe can you at least smell like shit or yeah. have a weird thing you do that's awful? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like every other gremlin is kind of more appealing because it's not trying to be like the only thing that it's doing is being cute. Right. It wasn't created by like Cold War era scientists to undermine your freedom with its cuteness. Right. Right. Also, yeah. like, what is this? Ha this thing has to be domesticated, right? Like, oh, sure. This is a domesticated species because nothing in nature is that specifically human cute unless it has been domesticated and has, as a evolutionary trait, developed cute to humans as, right. as a thing that it does. So, like, for you, is it that you would prefer... Um, so, uh, the, the final product, Gizmo the Gremlin, right? You would maybe want three evolutionary chain links back before it became Gizmo the Gremlin. Yeah. Like, still kind of, like, kind of wild, kind of feral, might eat your face might uh take a shit on the lawn you don't know what's going to happen but you know that this thing is not like in just sickeningly ingratiating with yeah. humans. like like give it some sharp teeth and make it like chew on your shoe <laughs> we need we need those scenes with, I don't, with gizmo yeah i don't feel like i'm asking for a lot here well i mean at least we do get the scene with him at the end that i think was somehow not meant to be horrifying that he was like smiling that happy little Furby smile as his brethren melt down. Yeah, into... that was a, that was a little bit dark, or a <laughs> an lot unholy dark. paste. Um, which <laughs> I mean, and, and like like with the plotting of this movie, I love that. Uh, just I now the thing is with like so now in 2017, meta commentary and like breaking the fourth wall is almost kind of a given with a lot of movies. Like we've we've come to expect that level of wall breaking. Yeah. Um, this one required Hulk Hogan to oh my stand God. up in the middle of the movie, call them the Grumsters, threaten to beat them up if they don't make the movie resume. Okay, here's the thing. Like, that scene could have been, like, funny and, like, an effective joke if it had been at the dead end of the movie. Like, sticking it into the <laughs> right. middle of the movie, was it's, okay, it's not that that joke was a bad joke. It was just a poorly timed, poorly placed joke. Because if you right. have the gremlins, like, taking over New York and everything, oh, and then, like, they're, they're defeated, but, oh, no, there's, like, this one lady gremlin that's left. And then right mm -hmm. at the end, before you slam to the credits, you get this scene of, like, the film spooling off and the, the shadows of the gremlins, and you're like, oh, no, oh, no, they're here, they're here. Then it's, right. it's well-timed and effective and a structural thing, <laughs> but having it in the middle of the movie did not make any sense whatsoever. It, yeah, it derails the whole thing. Which, yeah. however, the image we are left on, the last thing you see in this movie, Lady Gremlin definitely fucks. I have so many, like, <laughs> objections to that. Like, okay, oh, if uh, I'm yeah. going to label any part of this movie as, like, unequivocally bad, it's going to mm -hmm. be, like, that scene right there. And it's, like, because it's unnecessary, it's not part of the plot, it's mm -hmm. stupid... It is sure. just, I mean, like, it's still doing the thing that it sets out to do, so I guess I have to give it that. Um, right. But why? I mean, it's setting out to do a thing that's fundamentally fucking repugnant. Yeah. Like, it, it accomplishes making me uncomfortable because the, the dude is getting pursued by a lady gremlin that, like, apparently, you know, this Muppet fucks. And then he kind of, he's he goes from disgusted to kind of going... I guess I could fuck a gremlin. And then that's the image you're left on before the end. Yes, like, yes. Which, I my mean, my other question, where did Lady Gremlin find a gremlin-sized wedding gremlin? Thank wedding you, dress? yes. Yeah, okay. Like, I have this question about, like, every time the gremlins are wearing clothing, why is mm -hmm. the gremlin in a hard hat and overalls? Why is the gremlin wearing glasses? Why did the gremlin suddenly, when he got smart, require glasses? Where did right. the gremlin-sized wedding dress come from? Like, I understand that it's supposed to be a visual joke, but also, like, why and where? Um, but you, reali you realize that this movie's answer to that question would just be fucking gremlins jumping out and attaching themselves to your I face. I know. Like, like I, I am at it's any nihilism. moment expecting a gremlin to, like, launch itself out of nowhere and maul me for the the daring to ask these incisive <laughs> questions. Um, right. Which also, by the way, brings us back to our uh, discussion of Stephen Moffat, because he also did that thing. He loves doing that thing of 
um, he writes an, uh, an impossible bullshit thing into his storylines and then leaves it on a cliffhanger, right? Yeah. And then you, uh, the fans have like months in between finding out what happened. So everybody's coming up with these really elaborate fan theories and, and you know, like rewatching it a million times to try to figure it out. And then he puts in a character whose sole job is to represent you. And yeah. also he like he pisses into his own eye and screams and punches himself and falls down and yells, I'm the dumbest boy in second grade. Yeah. And then yeah. Stephen Moffat appears on screen and says, that's you. That's what you look like. Um, and gremlins basically do that, but they short, they, they simplify the process considerably by just throwing gremlins at a face. Yes. Yes. Um, oh, speaking of gremlins wearing clothing, I also have another strong objection. This was also in my notes in all caps. Mm-hmm. How does it understand human grieving customs? Because at the beginning <laughs> of the the beginning of the movie, like what's his name opens up the toolbox that he's been carrying around cute gremlin in, and cute gremlin is wearing this black armband to yeah. like mourn for the guy what died, and it's like, oh, you got the, your you got your little armband there. Like, what's that for? Like, oh, are you sad? And it's like, how does it huh? know? what a black armband is for like that's that's not just like something that it saw someone wearing it's that's like several steps of inference and culture to get through before you arrive at what's his name died i will wear a black armband (laughs) well and also um excellent fucking point and also gizmo the gremlin uh pretty fair weather in his judgment about which life has worth because what's his name dies he's wearing an armband literal hundreds of other gremlins uh get turned into pudding yeah he doesn't give a shit he's good with it yeah he's fine with it like yeah. you what it begs the question like is gizmo the villain all along there's got to be a fan theory out there about how gizmo is actually a monster a la jar jar binks is the lord of the sith yeah like did gizmo just sort of engineer this whole thing for some nefarious reason yeah because like no one would suspect gizmo if he was behind everything no like where's the gremlins 3 where gizmo is now president of the entire solar system (laughs) (laughs) which i also desperately need that movie i mean sure like we all do we all do um Mm -hmm. yes uh i also had like another another point of my objection to the lady gremlin if you don't mind going back to that very briefly and please please yeah and it's like a feminism thing where we have this depiction of repugnant uh femaleness right repugnant femininity and and I object to it. I guess that's all I wanted to say. <laughs> no, yeah. No, it's super fucking gross because, like, they were like, all right, you know, up there with bat gremlin and vegetable gremlin and all these wild gremlins, they were like, what if the craziest creature of all, lady, lady gremlin. gremlin. And also, like, I got kind of a weird feeling about it because um, you see right before, like, lady gremlin comes from the lab where the gremlin drinks what's essentially a sex change potion so is it oh jesus yeah yeah like is this a is this a joke that's based on repugnant femininity or is this a joke about wow trans people are gross which is right offensive on many levels yeah and then also the the fact that listen gremlins reproduce asexually why do they gotta like why do they have to adhere to binary gender yes like why does the gremlin have boobs why does she have boobs? Like, who, Gremlins who, don't nurse. Wh- we never once see a gremlin nurse. They're not mammals. Why does she no. have mammary glands if she's not a mammal? Right. Like, you never, like, if they reproduce asexually, what, yeah, but why would you need mammary glands? Yes. Oh, my God. Like, oh this my is, God. yeah. Well, and, and, and here's the other thing is that, like, like you were saying, like, with repugnant female stuff, um, she, I, I, if you're leaving closed captions on to understand anything in this movie, um, She's, like, chasing after the EMH doctor from Star Trek Voyager, whose name I forget. Uh, the guy that ends up going, eh, I guess I could fuck a gremlin. And she's, again, screaming, like, you know, I need you to commit in a oh, shrill yes. gremlin voice. Yes, that was gross, too. Because I did oh. watch it with closed captions on. Because yeah. um, I couldn't understand what some of the people were saying, let alone the gremlins. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, like, why would you commit? And it's like, Wow. Wow. Yeah, wow. lady, fucking lady gremlin. And then that, like, mixed with the sort of, like, playful sexual harassment of lady gremlin toward guy. Okay. Where, 
yeah. here here's here's why I think it's actually more about like wow chicks are scary and gross is because like the playful sexual harassment thing is not only seen from the lady gremlin it's also seen from the lady manager oh shit that's right yeah where she like basically strong arms what's his name the main character into going to dinner with her and then like does the sexy hair at him all night and then then forces a foot foot job on him and oh, forces Jesus. a kiss on him before he leaves. Like, and the whole time I'm watching this, especially like in the current climate of, mm-hmm. you know, all these sexual har- harassment allegations coming out, it's like this is a movie that thinks women are this thing. And it's kind of equating, you know, there's, oh my God, I just realized this. It's drawing a direct parallel between the manager and the lady gremlin. Oh my god. Because so the, she because she kisses his face and leaves like that garish kiss mark on his face. That he doesn't wipe off, by the way. That he doesn't wipe off mysteriously. Between mm-hmm. work and home, the whole time he's on the subway, he doesn't wipe it off. Weird. Doesn't occur um, to him. So but there's like that visual uh parallel between the garish kiss mark on what's his name's face and also the guy at the end with his face covered in garish kiss marks. Right. Which, yeah. by the way, perfectly uniform kiss marks like a pattern across his entire head. Yeah. Like, no overlap with those kisses. Like, perfectly applied Lady Gremlin lip marks just tattooing this guy's head. And so you've got some... And But even aside from that, you've got kind of lecherous fuck gremlins with, like, they're under a table uh, with a lady and they're all kind of looking at her feet and it, it, it's... You know, yeah, I got to tell like, you. Yeah, and they're like, ooh, legs. And it's <laughs> like, Jesus, why? You know, I got to tell you, I'm not sold on the sexual politics of Gremlins 2, the new batch. Um, it It's it's weird and uncomfortable. And also, people were taking their kids to go see this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which kind of, you know, honestly, in the harsh light of 2017, here's the thing. Now, we're talking a lot of shit about Gremlins 2. Uh, I really like Gremlins 2. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is... <laughs> It is a fucking dumpster fire of a movie. Like, no joke in this movie is anything other than a reference joke. Like, every laugh in this movie is in reference to a different thing. Well, okay. Hold on. You're forgetting, like, the racist joke right at the beginning. Oh, Christ. Which, also, the first Gremlins had a lot of Orientalism. I was and... I was really, like, after those first couple Orientalism jokes, I was expecting a lot more puns on the word, quote, oriental, unquote. Christ. Like, and, you know, the only reason that we were saved from that is because the movie promptly forgot that anyone other than white people exist. Yeah. Well, and then you've got, like, two different shades of racism from yeah. between Gremlins and Gremlins 2, because Gremlins 1 was just, like, sort of old-timey orientalism with, like, a mystical shop that has an item. And then Gremlins 2 has um an asian fellow whose thing is that he's a camera guy oh and yeah there is that guy i forgot about because him. there was that like late 80s early 90s thing of like the japanese tourists with the camera yeah and also they were um like japan was kicking america's ass in terms of electronics during that period and everybody in america was really really nervous about it so we get characters like this yes yes um and it is <laughs> it is real fucking uncomfortable um yeah. so gremlins 2 it's got so many problems with it but I almost just appreciate it as a kind of um, pop culture dumpster fire. Yes. Yes. Like, it is it is crammed. It is a turducken of weird, like, late 80s, early 90s cultural shit. Uh, and I kind of can't think of anything like Gremlins 2 because there's not a plot in the way that we think of plot. It's Yeah. Mostly you know, a special effects demo reel. Have you have you ever seen Spaceballs? Oh, I love Spaceballs. Yeah, it's kind of in that genre. Hmm. Because yeah. like the- every every single joke in Spaceballs is also like some other pop culture reference. Oh yeah, I mean Mel Mel Brooks. I don't think people uh, hold that guy's feet to the fire enough for making a lot of his jokes. Just hey, remember this other thing? Yeah. Like um, oh yeah, it's a thing that, and mm-hmm. another thing, and it's like yeah okay. <laughs> Sure. Gremlins 2, the tagline. I sure do know things. You, you sure um, know those things, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, in ranking this movie, the only other self-referential dumpster fire movie I can think of that's in any way comparable is uh, this movie Cat in the Brain at number 49, um, 
which was basically a director's um, meditation on why he makes horror movies. And it was um, also um, basically written via Mad Lib, kind of in the way that Gremlins 2 was. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a real problem. However, I think, so I think Cat in the Brain, I think it's better than Cat in the Brain, but not as good as the movie Maniac from 1980, which was a seminal slasher movie. I have not seen either of those. Shocking. Uh, which actually, <laughs> I, see, one of these days I'm going to I'm gonna say a thing like, you know, I really don't know about uh, The Devil's Candy. And you're going to be like, yeah, I've seen that like eight times. So. Um, but so uh, at, uh, I think, at number 49 in between Maniac and Cat in the Brain is Gremlins 2, The New Batch from 1990, directed by Joe Dante. Cool. So there we go. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me on. And please have me back some other time to talk about some other <laughs> technically horror movie that doesn't register with my brain as horror. Well, Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, we'll, 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 do, we'll do Pan's Labyrinth and some other horrible... Oh, no, I'll make you watch that. And uh, Scooby-Doo, uh, a WrestleMania mystery. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that to you. Um, but Scooby-Doo, maybe. Dude, you, uh, maybe that's Scooby-Doo with the zombie pirates from the mid-2000s? Uh... Actually, I think I did see that. Well, there you go. Like so the, we could, live, yeah, we the live action Labyrinth. one with the CGI? Oh, no, no, no. That was, um, oh my God, we could do that one though. Holy shit. It's got Matthew Lillard in it. We should do that one. <laughs> uh, Alex, where can our listeners find you online? Uh, you can find me online on Twitter, which is at underscore Alex Roland. That's R-O-W-L-A-N-D. Or on my website, www.alexandraroland.net. Excellent. And then obviously you can find Rankin Vile on Twitter at uh, Rankin Vile Cast. Uh, and then on Tumblr and Instagram at just Rankin Vile. Um, and then also if you have any uh, suggestions for a movie uh, that you want us to watch or uh, anything that you're angry that we haven't talked about, which is like most popular American horror that was not a full moon uh, straight to video release from 1989, uh, definitely probably the best way to reach us is to send it to our Gmail, uh, rankinvilecast at Gmail. Uh, and we may get around to that. One of them that we got was literally just somebody going on anonymously on Tumblr, like, hey, can you guys do Jaws? And, all, and Quincy and I both went, we're doing Jaws. Yeah. Um, but that's how you can find us online. Uh, I believe that's all I have. Have a good week, folks.